All right, well, good to see all of you guys again, and thankful for some weather, a bright, shiny, yellow thing in the sky that we haven't seen forever, so really glad. It just feels like, I mean, Christmas, I mean, welcome to March, right? Christmas was just yesterday, and now we are here. Uh, last week, we entered into a section in Hebrews, chapter 11, that, as John talked about a minute ago, is called the Hall of Faith. And what it is, is it's a great big just series of examples or illustrations of people who, by faith, just kept continuing on. And the author is giving these examples to us to just show us like that these people are just like us, sinners, just like you and me, and that if they can keep going, then we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, do the same. Because when you go back and look at their stories in the Old Testament, you see that all of their stories are these mixtures of faith and folly, faith and failure, faith and falling, but hanging on to their faith and just keeping going. And that's the call here in Hebrews 11. Just keep on following, keep walking by faith, even when you fall, even when you fail, even when you are foolish, keep going. Repent, turn away from that, turn back to Christ, and go, continue on. Uh, my men's group, we, group of men uh, from my community group have been, um, or a majority of them, have been gathering on Tuesday mornings early for the, about the last uh, eight weeks, and we're reading a book called Deeper. Uh, real change for real sinners, and it's been a it's been a good study. And this week we had a chapter called Pain, um, and in that chapter the author shared a quote from a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend, and it was very much kind of on this point that I just talked about of continuing on. And here's what it said: It was really helpful, and I thought it was just he just puts it well. No amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. And we shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are all ready. The towels are put out and the clean clothes are in the cupboard. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give it up. And that's the call of chapter 11. Continue on. By faith, keep going. And so last week we looked at the first few examples that the author gives. We looked at Abel, and we talked about Enoch, and we talked about Noah, and we began to take a little bit of a peek at Abraham and how God called him to go out from his country to a place that he did not know and go by faith, not knowing where he was going. But to really understand the faith of Abraham and to really understand all that's going on with Abraham in this section. But then beyond that, to really understand a whole lot of the Bible, the the great big story of the Bible, the great big story of reality, where like all of this that that we're wrapped in, where all of this is going to really understand all of that. We've got to understand something called the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, the Abrahamic covenant, because it's not only central to this hall of faith section, it's central to the grand story of the Bible. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning, which means, I mean, just straight out of the gate, we're going to be a little bit heavy today in biblical theology. 
I've got to put a bunch of big pieces together to help give you a framework for understanding the grand story of the Bible. Like if you ever just approach the Bible and you're like, man, it's just, I don't understand. It's just so disjointed and I, I don't know. There's 66 books and there's all, I'm like, I want to try to help give you a cohesive way to look at Scripture this morning. And it centers around the Abrahamic covenant. And so the way it's going to kind of work then is it's going to be like a, a cat's cradle where, you know, the strings that you do on your fingers or whatever, and it's just all these threads, and then you kind of pull it tight and it does something. I don't know. I've never done it. I looked up, what do you call the string thing around people's fingers? They say it was called a cat's cradle. I don't know if that's true. But anyhow, it's going to kind of look like that. And when we pull it, hopefully we will have a cohesive design and understanding by the end. All right. And so the first thing we've got to understand is what I just said a second ago, that, this, that the Bible is centrally one story. It's not a bunch of collection, a bunch of morality tales that are just disjointed. It's not just a bunch of Aesop's fables, how you live like this and live like this. It's centrally one story, and it's a story that centers around Jesus Christ. So from Genesis to Revelation, it is telling one major story. And so it can kind of be, and I've shared this with you before, you can think of it, and I encourage you to think of it as like a great big play with four major acts. Four major acts. You can write this down. So act number one is creation. In the beginning, God created a good world. It was beautiful. It was perfect. And as the crown jewel, he made mankind, made in his image. And he did this not because he was lacking in anything, but just because he wanted to. So he created and it was perfect, and it was wonderful. That's act one. Act two is the fall. This is where mankind rebels against God, rejects God's good word, goes their own way, eats of the fruit that they were told not to eat of, and sin enters the world, and it mars and breaks God's good creation. But then the rest of the Bible, I mean, that's just Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The rest of the Bible and history is focused on telling like it's act three, which is redemption centered in Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection to rescue sinners like me and you from what we deserve from uh, sin and death and hell, the wrath of God, Satan and ourselves. All right. So that's act one. That's act two. That's act three. And then looking forward to portions of scripture, look forward to act four which is the coming restoration. When Jesus comes again, and all the sad things come untrue, and sin and death are no more, and there's new heavens, there's a new earth, everything wrong, made right. That's the grand story of the Bible, okay? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You need to know that, you need to write those down. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Four acts. That's the grand story of the Bible and reality, where all of this is going. And central to that four-act play is this thing called the Abrahamic Covenant. Where God shows up in Genesis chapters, the end of 11 through 17. So we're in the middle of the third act, redemption. And he shows up in complete sovereign freedom to an Iraqi man named Abram. Who at this point probably is an idol worshiper. And he comes to him and he says, hey, I understand that the world's broken sin has fractured it. It is messed up. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to start with you. 
And you are now going to be mine. And you are going to worship me. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to raise up a great nation from you. Your name's going to be great. And I'm going to change it to Abraham. And I'm going to make a covenant with you to redeem the world. And so the Abrahamic covenant, if you just want like kind of a Cliff Notes definition, in a nutshell, it is God's promise to fix the world. It's God's promise to fix the world. It's a promise to make right all that's gone wrong. It's a promise to basically bring Eden back. Because it's a promise to get God's people back in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And those are words that we're going to repeat a gazillion times and you need to write down and memorize. I mean, I kind of put them in your notes. but God's people, God's rule, God's people, God's place, and God's rule and blessing. And the reason you need to memorize those is because this is the pattern of God's kingdom across Scripture. Like all throughout Scripture, you see this pattern. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so it begins in the Garden of Eden. God's very good creation. It's very good. It's perfect. It's wonderful. This is where this is established. And so watch this. You have in the Garden of Eden, God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing. So right there, the kingdom pattern is established. And then it's broken And the covenant with Abraham is a promise to ultimately bring that back. And so look at Genesis 12 with me. Genesis chapter 12. Early in your Bible. There should be one around you somewhere and it'll be in the first couple of pages. The first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. You can also look on the screens behind me. Now the Lord said to Abram... Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. To the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so that's the promise in a nutshell. You see, it's a promise of land. It's a promise of a great nation, a bunch of people. And it's a promise of blessing. In other words, it's a promise of God's people... In land, God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so the question then we need to answer is what's in your sermon guide? Well, then who exactly are God's people? Like if we're going to understand this, then who's he talking about? Who is this offspring, this great nation? And then where exactly is God's place? Like what is that? What is the promised land? And then what is God's rule and blessing? What does that look like? And so we're just going to take each one in order. We'll build back to Hebrews 11. And so number one, again, building blocks today for understanding much of Scripture. Right? A little heavy on teaching today. And so number one, who are God's people? 
Who are God's people? Like, who are the descendants of Abraham that Genesis 15 says will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens? Well, on the one hand, it's the Israelites, the Jewish people. They are the initial fulfillment of the promise. Okay? Initial fulfillment. And so the promise begins with a son named Isaac. I'm going to give you a son. And so Sarah's held up, as we read just a minute ago, is an example of faith because she believed that since God had promised that they would have a son, even though she was 90 years old, if God promised it, it really would happen. And it did. And so the promise then flowed from Isaac, Abraham to Isaac, and then from Isaac to Jacob, not Esau, the older brother, but Jacob, the younger brother. And then Jacob has 12 sons that basically become the 12 tribes of Israel. They wind up in bondage in uh, Egypt for 400 years. God raises up Moses. He brings them out. They wander around in the desert for 40 years. Caleb and Joshua take them into the promised land. Then they go through this long series of judges and whatnot. Finally, they come to a place where they have uh, King Saul and then King David and King Solomon. And this is like the high point of this initial fulfillment of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. But it's only the initial fulfillment. This wasn't the end game. This wasn't the goal. Just kind of like a waypoint on the map. So like when my family travels to to Destin for our yearly summer vacation, they may not like it so much. But for me, I am always just watching for that first tree with Spanish moss. Like that first tree. And I get all excited. Girls, there's Spanish moss, right? Because it's a waypoint. Now, it's not the beach, praise God. Like the beach is still to come, but it's a waypoint. It shows me I'm on, we're on the way. And that's the way a lot of the promises in the Old Testament work. Like we see the promises as if they're all together, like they're smushed together. And so if you travel and you land in, in, in Denver, you look to the west and it just looks like this giant wall of mountains. But then when you get to them and you start going through them, you realize, oh, these are separated by hundreds and hundreds of miles. It's not a, it's not a smushed together bunch. It, there's a big distance in between and there's, there's the foothills I'm to, but, but the big ones are still way, way, way out there. That's the way a lot of God's promises in the Old Testament work. There are initial fulfillments, but that's not the end game. The big ones are still to come. And such is the case here. You have an initial fulfillment, but that's not the end fulfillment. That's still to come. And so, for example, I mean, some of this you, 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 you already know. Like Deuteronomy chapter 18. There's a promise that there will come another prophet like Joshua. I mean, like Moses. And that's initially fulfilled in Joshua. Long term, though, that's talking. New Testament tells us about Jesus. Same thing with Samuel. The books of Samuel 1 and 2 tells us that there's coming a king to rule over God's people. And that's initially fulfilled in David. But the New Testament tells us that's fully fulfilled in Christ, in Jesus. These things serve as types to look forward to Jesus. And so it is also with God's people, Abraham's descendants. Through the pages of Scripture and the years of history, there are partial fulfillments, there are patterns established, but they are just shadows. They are not the substance. It's like classical music. When you start listening to it, you can establish a theme really soon. But by the end, it is a whole lot more developed. 
And so let me go ahead, like, <clears throat> just where we're at already, and just pull the cat's cradle and try to give us a little bit of a shape. All right? And so, in Eden, all right, talking about God's people, God's place, God's rule and blessing. In Eden, you had the kingdom pattern established with God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. In Abraham, you have the kingdom promised. God will return his people to his place under his rule and blessing. With David and Solomon, you have the kingdom foreshadowed. An initial fulfillment of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. But that's not the end. Jesus comes to the earth and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand because he is God's people. You remember how he identifies with the church? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's the body or he's the the head. We're the body. He is God's people. He is God's place. He is God's rule and blessing. And then when Christ returns, we'll have the kingdom consummated. And the finality of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's the ultimate fulfillment. And so kind of jumping ahead to the second question, we'll come back to the first and second. Where is God's place? Well, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And as you... As we read from Hebrews chapter 11, I want you to notice carefully that Abraham never looks at the promised land, at Canaan, as the ultimate fulfillment. He and his descendants know that that's not it. They know that there was so much more to the promise than that. And so Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, so initial fulfillment, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking Forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so Abraham was not just thinking about a little stretch of land in Canaan. He's looking forward to the culmination of everything, the coming forth act, the restoration, a new heavens and new earth, a city that has foundations where he doesn't live in a tent where it's permanent and forever, can't be taken away, whose designer and builder is God. That's the real promised land he's looking forward to, new heavens and new earth. And so that's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, not about the land of Canaan, but he writes this, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come... Let me back up. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the what? World. Not Canaan. Not a little slice in the Middle East. The world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so God's promise to Abraham, ultimately, again, there's initial fulfillments, but ultimately is a whole lot more than a slice of land in the Middle East. His promise is new heavens. It's new earth. Look at verse 13 of Hebrews 11. These all died, talking about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, not having received the things promised. If it's just that little piece, they never had it. Abraham owned a cave. That's it. 
So that's not what he's talking about. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. Again, new heavens, new earth is what he's looking to. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, just like us. Strangers and exiles here. This isn't home. For the people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Friends, there is a new heaven and a new earth with a new Jerusalem coming. That's the real promised land. That's ultimately God's place where God's people will dwell for all eternity under his rule and blessing. The new heavens and the new earth. And that's really what the Abrahamic covenant is all about. That's what it's looking to. So in the promised land, we talk about God's, God's people, God's place, God's rule and blessing. God's place is the new heavens and new earth. That's the ultimate fulfillment. Let's go back and finish the first question. Who is this group known as the people of God? For one, again, it starts with Abraham. Abraham became the father of God's people because God chose him and because he trusted God by faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? Because of his faith in God and his promises, God credited Abraham as righteous. Not because of what he did, but because of faith. Which is like if you read, which is super encouraging because if you read Genesis, the rest of Genesis, that is, it's not on Abraham's actions, it's on his faith. That's super encouraging because Father Abraham had issues, right? And so if God could work through him, that means he could work through you and me as well. But yeah, the, the people of God starts with Abraham, and these promises were made to his descendants. And so then, well, who are his descendants? Is it ethnic Israel? Is that who we're talking about? Who, who, who these promises are made to? Who is it? Well, let's flip over to the New Testament. Because again, often things that are only hinted at in the Old Testament become more clear in the New Testament. So go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. If you know your Bible, don't freak out. Romans chapter 9. What's going on here is Paul is admitting the heartbreaking reality that many of his Jewish kinsmen have rejected Christ and are a curse. They are under God's condemnation for unbelief. But aren't these God's people, the physical descendants of Abraham? Well, then how can God condemn them if ethnic Israel is the descendants to whom the promise was made? Has the word of Israel, has the word of God failed? And Paul's resounding answer is no. And so Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham had other kids. 
Ishmael, and then after Sarah died, a whole slew of other ones. But it was only through Isaac. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, God's promises have not failed because the promises were never intended for every physical descendant of Abraham. Just as Isaac, not Ishmael, was the child of promise, and just as Jacob, not Esau, was the child of promise, so also throughout Israel's history, there's been a true remnant within Israel who are the heirs of the covenant. Okay? Spiritual and true Israel inside of ethnic Israel. And so the hard reality that Paul is coming to grips with here is that the rest of ethnic Israel are not the seed of Abraham. Even though they trace their physical descent to him, they do not share his faith. And it is faith that makes one a descendant of Abraham. That's why John the Baptist said to the unrepentant Jews, do not say we have Abraham as our father. Like that's not going to do anything for you just because you descended from the guy. And then Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did, which is what? Have faith. Paul himself lays it out in Romans chapter 2 like this. No one, chapter 2 verse 28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And so the biggest point we need to take home from Romans 9 is that many Israelites are not the seed of Abraham because they do not share his faith. And they will not inherit the promise because they don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so God's people, Abraham's true descendants, it's not based on ethnicity. Rather, it's based upon faith. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Verse 7, it's on the screen behind me. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. The man of faith. Skip down to verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one one people of God, one group in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so in the end, Paul is saying who will and who will not inherit the promises is not based upon ethnicity, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. It's also not based upon what gender, whether you're a male or a female. It's also not based upon socioeconomic status, whether you are a slave or free. It's based upon faith. The, the question is Galatians 3.29, are you in Christ? And if so, you are Abraham's 
seed. Like Jesus is specifically the seed, but if you are in Him, you are an heir of the promise. And so if you're a believer, the little VBS sing-along that you did when you were a kid is true. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons. Sing with me, come on. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, turn around, right? The whole nine yards. Thank you. Thank you. But it's true. You had many sons. I am one of them. By faith. And so are you. If you are in faith. It's not about descent. Our relationship, our kinship is faith. And so the VBS song is true. And so here's the, the gloriously good news reality. If you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. And are thus part of the ones for whom the covenant was intended. And therefore are ones upon whom the blessings will be ultimately fulfilled. We will be in God's place under God's... We, as God's people, will be in His place under His rule and blessing someday. They were never intended to ultimately, finally be fulfilled in ethnic Israel, but spiritual Israel. That is those who have been credited, had their faith credited to them as righteousness. Okay, all believers across all time, across all geographic locations and all timelines, whether Jews or Gentiles. And this group in the New Testament is known as the church. One people of God. True and spiritual Israel. And so Galatians 3, again, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. That's God's people. That's God's people. All believers of all time. And so the 4,000 year old promises made to Abraham are made to you. As part of God's people. There's a new heaven. There's a new earth. All that's gone wrong will be made right. And that promise is open to anyone who will repent and believe. Yep, Lord, I, yep, I am, I'm a sinner. And I can't save myself. I deserve your wrath. I understand that. But I received Jesus as the one who came and lived perfectly for me because I didn't. As the one who died in my place for what I should deserve. And he did it for me. And then he rose again, showing it's all true. He is who he says he is. He does what he says he does. And he has won over sin and death. And so again, God's working through the Abrahamic covenant to fix everything and to bring about a restoration where for all eternity, God's people will be in God's place under his rule and blessing. And so number three, real quick then, what is God's blessing? What is God's blessing? There's a gazillion, but the biggest one is this. We get God. The biggest blessing is God. That we get him, a relationship with him. Like our triune God is what makes heaven heaven. Like 
if you would love to go to heaven and it's going to be glorious and wonderful and everything, see your, your loved ones and, and, and all this, but Jesus isn't there, you still want to go. And if so, then you want His stuff, not Him. Which means God's like a genie to you. I just want what you can give me, not you. But what is truly heaven is that we get God. We get all those other things too. That's wonderful. But the biggest gift is that we get God. Like seeing all of our loved ones who, if they've passed on and they are in Christ, seeing them again, that's going to be awesome. Can't wait for that. Talking to Abraham, Moses, like what was it like? That's going to be great. Finding out all, God, why did you do this in my life? Why? Oh, like finding out all those little things, that's going to be fantastic. I look forward to that as well. But the biggest thing that makes heaven, heaven, is that God's there. John Piper puts it well. The gospel is not merely that Jesus died and rose again. It's not merely that these events appease God's wrath, forgive sin, and justify sinners. And not merely that this redemption gets us out of hell and into heaven but that they bring us to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as our supreme, all-satisfying, and everlasting treasure. We get what Adam and Eve lost. They had full fellowship with God. And that was broken by sin. And we get that back. Full fellowship with God that starts now but will be fully ours someday in the new heavens and the new earth. All right. Well, then, Joe, what does that mean for today? Because we're not in the new heavens and the new earth. We're here in this broken world. Well, the heart of the Abrahamic covenant, the heart of the promises God made to God's people is that we are his people and that he is our God and that he cares for us. And so you have promises like Jeremiah 32 God says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing good to them with all my heart and with all my soul. This is God's promise to you. And in this broken world, that doesn't mean everything's going to be hunky-dory. Listen, cancer's still going to come. Death's still going to come. Tragedies is still going to strike. But it does mean that the God who made the universe, big God, 100 billion galaxies, 100 octillion stars, the God who made all of that, the God who made everything from the big down to the tiny and controls it all down to the molecules and protons and neutrons and electrons of everything controlling all of that. This God designed, controls all of it. This God, the Bible says, rejoices to do good to you with all his heart and with all his soul in all the circumstances that you face, whatever they may be, even the hard ones. I mean, it's Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? Like, how do we respond to this good news? If God's for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Which may not be right now, but will be. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Like, who could come and condemn us? Well, only God could. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus could, but it says Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He does, like with all his heart, good towards us. Shall tribulation? Nope. Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. With all his heart, with all his soul, doing good to you. That's a crazy thought. And nothing can separate us from that. But again, trying to get you to see this big picture. God's people, God's place, God's rule and blessing. In Eden, you have the kingdom pattern. In Abraham, you have the kingdom promise. I'm going to get that back. David and Solomon, you have the kingdom foreshadowed. Here's a small picture. When Jesus comes, you have the kingdom at hand. When Jesus comes again. We have the kingdom consummated. And for all time, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. And so Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. Here's that city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Like, we get it back. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And this is what Abraham, by faith, was looking forward to. And so may we also have this eternal perspective. So that we, like all the members of the Hall of Faith, might live faithfully in the present because of our hope of this guaranteed future in Christ. That's the Abraham covenant. That's what it's about. Let's pray. Father, by grace, through faith, in Christ, 
You have rescued sinners. And you have made glorious promises to these, your children, your people. Father, may these promises sustain us. That though this world has many wonderful things, it is fractured and broken. But this isn't all there is. This is not the end game. This is not all there is. This is a short little period. We get a couple of, a few decades, and then it's over. But eternity is coming, and eternity is long. But what we do now determines what our eternity will look like, whether that's hell or whether that's heaven. And the promise of Jesus, through, whereby grace through faith that we put in Him to be our Savior, we are guaranteed of not just escape from torment, but glory surrounding your throne as your people in your place forever and ever under your rule and blessing. And so, Father, we praise you for this truth and we long for it to come to pass. And we pray for your sustaining power until the day that you do come again, Jesus, or the day that we drop and meet you after our death. In Christ's name, amen.